Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. A number of years ago, my parents-in-law were having breakfast in their kitchen one Saturday or Sunday morning. I can't remember which one. Uh, Mother-in-law Kathy would have been there at the kitchen table, dressing gown on, father-in-law Jim, pair of shorts, maybe a t-shirt, depends if he's been for a run that morning. Uh, Anyway, they were sitting at the kitchen table, enjoying their breakfast, uh, when the door from the lounge room to the kitchen opened. And in strolled this guy, uh, never seen him before, didn't know him from Adam, with a very sheepish look on his face. Now, of course, they were thinking, who on earth are you and what on earth are you doing in our home? Because you see, he, he didn't look dangerous, Uh, He didn't look threatening. In fact, if anything, he looked confused. Well, it turns out um, he'd been out the night before. Uh, He'd had a big night. Um, My parents-in-law live in the country. He was making his way home. He got their house confused with another house. Uh, They don't lock their doors. Uh, He meandered round the back of their house in the wee hours of the morning, let himself in the back door, walked into their lounge room and slept the night on their couch. Now, I don't tell you that story to condone or encourage you uh, in the guy's actions, but to simply illustrate that there are all kinds of things that you can get confused about. All kinds of things that you can mistake. All kinds of things that you can get wrong. And it might lead to some social awkwardness, and a little discomfort, but at the end of the day, no lasting damage is done, and you can laugh the whole thing off as being pretty harmless. Is Jesus one of those things? That is, can you be confused about him, get his identity wrong, but at the end of the day, no lasting damage will be done, and you can laugh the whole thing off as being pretty harmless? A number of years ago, McCrindle Research did a study on faith and belief in Australia. And in the study, they, they looked at a whole bunch of things from church attendance to uh, how comfortable Aussies are talking about spirituality and religion to belief blockers. So those things that, humanly speaking, might prevent somebody from exploring Christianity to perceptions of Jesus. When it comes to perceptions of Jesus, suppose you have a hundred average Aussies in a room. I'm not saying you're not average Aussies. Uh, There's about a hundred of us here, I guess. Um, But I'm aware that this is a church and most of us here this morning are probably Christians. But just suppose you could get in a room a hundred Aussies that that accurately represent the general population of Australia. 44 of those people would say they know a significant amount about Jesus. 24 would say they know a moderate amount. 23 would say they know a few things about the life of Jesus. Five would say they don't know anything about the life of Jesus, and three would say they've never heard of him. Now, if you were to ask those same people how important Jesus is to the history of the world and the culture in which we live, 53 will say that he's extremely or very important. 33 will say that he's slightly or somewhat important. And 14 will say he's not important at all. If you were to ask those exact same people how important Jesus is to them personally, so not how important is Jesus to world history or the culture in which we live, but how important is Jesus to you personally? 32 or 31 will say that rather he is extremely or very important. 
32 will say he's slightly or somewhat important. And now the largest category, 37, will say that he's not important at all. So who's right? Is he extremely important, somewhat important, or not important at all? Well, of course, how you answer that question depends almost entirely on who you understand Jesus to be. So with that in mind, I want us to look together at this passage from John chapter 5, because it's really all about the identity of Jesus. Now, I'm aware that you guys preach expositionally through books of the Bible. I'm just dropping you in the middle of John chapter 5. So let me kind of bring you up to speed and tell you what you need to know about John's gospel. Um, John's gospel is written by one of Jesus' very first followers, the Apostle John. And it's his eyewitness account of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. For example, did you notice that in this passage, John mentions that this guy has been an invalid for 38 years? How does John know that? We see that's the kind of detail you get from someone who was there. Someone who witnessed these events, who knew Jesus, knew the people involved, heard conversations, asked questions and saw this event happen. Atheists will tell you that God doesn't exist. An agnostic will tell you that you can't know whether God exists. Well, John's written this gospel to tell you that God does exist, that you can know him and be forgiven by him, but that's only possible through faith in Jesus. So I want you to flip over to the back of John's gospel. Go to John chapter 20, verse 30. And there we'll find uh, John's purpose statement. So John's not left us in the dark as to why he's written this gospel. Flip over to John chapter 20, verse 30. It's very important to understand not just the overall purpose of John's gospel, to help us to see the purpose of this passage. John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, John's saying, I'm not being comprehensive. So I, I saw, witnessed, more than what I've written in this book. But... These, that is, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. That is, he's the king of God's kingdom. He's the son of God. So one who is truly God and truly man, God incarnate, God in the flesh, who came into our world and lived the perfect life that none of us in here have lived and died the death that we all deserve, dying on the cross as a substitute for sinners like us, so that if we turn from living life our own way and trust in him, we can be reconciled to the God who made us and who knows us and who loves us. And he was raised from the dead as proof that he really was who he claimed to be and that if we believe in him, then we can have life, real life, eternal life, life that stretches beyond the grave and into eternity. These signs, John says, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So in other words, John has written a series of signs. Not confused, charismatic craziness. Not word of faith, prosperity gospel paradigms for the Christian life and ministry. Not, not even actually simply raw acts of power. These are signs. So acts that Jesus actually did, many of them miraculous, that are intended to point beyond the act itself and are to lead you to a particular destination. 
You see, the, the sign is supposed to lead us and guide us to the place where we would come to believe and to keep on believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that by believing we might have life in his name. And this passage in John chapter 5 records one of those signs. But here's the thing, when McCrindle Research did that study on faith and belief in Australia a few years ago, one of the things they found is that when it, when it comes to belief blockers, so again, those things that, humanly speaking, might prevent somebody from exploring Christianity or investigating Jesus further, they found that one of the biggest belief blockers, in fact, the fourth biggest belief blocker in our culture, is reports of supernatural events like miracles. So can you see the tension? Right? So, so, so the very thing that John is recording to help lead us to a right understanding of G who Jesus is, is the very thing that stops people in our culture from even wanting to explore who Jesus is. So friend, if you're here this morning and you're sceptical, I want to say two things. So two things before we look at the passage, which I hope will kind of clear the way, um, clear away some misunderstanding and enable you to uh, see what's happening in this passage. Firstly, it's not that most people are, statistically speaking, opposed to the idea that God exists. It's just not true of Aussie culture. And if you think about it, if most people aren't opposed to the idea that God exists, then there is nothing logically inconsistent with believing that miracles are possible. It's just that in our culture, there is, I think, so much superficial, counterfeit nonsense today. You know, so much of the proverbial crying wolf or miracle, you know, every migraine is met with a miracle, that eventually people just stop listening. I want you to know, I'm actually sympathetic to that. But you see, the presence of counterfeits doesn't necessarily have to lead you to the conclusion that the real thing doesn't exist. I trust you've not done that with money. I would encourage you to not do that with this sign. Secondly, though, the reality is most of us have never experienced or even come close to experiencing the kind of miracles that Jesus performed. And when you've never experienced something personally, you've never witnessed it, it can just make it harder to believe. But actually, when you stop and think for a moment, that begins to make sense. You see, these signs that John records wouldn't be signs which point to the unique identity of Jesus as the Son of God if they were normal and everyone did them. I read a while ago an excellent little book. Uh, it was written a few years ago by Tim Chester uh, on miracles. And at one point in the book, he, he quotes from uh, an old Scottish atheistic philosopher uh, by the name of David Hume. And David Hume once said this about miracles. He said, nothing is counted as a miracle if it ever happens in the common course of nature. So saying, it's not a miracle if it's just a regular thing. He goes on to say, so there must be then a uniform experience against every miraculous event because otherwise the event wouldn't count as a miracle. And as a uniform experience amounts to a proof, we have here a direct and full proof against the existence of any miracle just because it's a miracle. So what Hume's saying is something like this. Miracles are by definition outside the bounds of normal human experience. Okay, so as I was saying, 
or rather, as I was saying, what Hume was saying. So basically what, what um, David Hume is saying is that so miracles are by definition outside the bounds of normal human experience. They wouldn't be miracles otherwise. And if miracles are outside the bounds of your own personal experience, then you should doubt their existence since you've never experienced them. That's what he's saying. That's his argument. But friends, just because you've never experienced something personally doesn't mean that the thing doesn't exist. Listen to how Chester responds to Hume. He writes this. It is said that the king of Siam refused to believe stories of rivers that become so hard that elephants could walk across them. Nothing in his experience had prepared him for such a possibility. You can sympathise with him. But the fact that he had never encountered ice does not mean that ice does not exist nor that rivers never freeze over. The experience of our generation can't be the criterion for what can happen. Just because you've never seen a miracle doesn't mean a miracle can't happen. John is writing as an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. So he physically followed Jesus around. He personally saw Jesus perform signs. And he's recorded some of those signs so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to look firstly at this sign that he records in John chapter 5. So if you're a note taker, point number one will be the sign. And then secondly, I want to look at what the sign signifies. So where is the sign intended to lead us? What kind of destination is it intended to take us to? And then thirdly, I want to think about some implications for us as we head into this new year. Does that make sense? So the sign, its significance, and then some implications. So firstly, the sign. One of the things I think that's just really interesting about John's gospel is how often John ties the ministry of Jesus to major Jewish religious feasts that happened in and around Jerusalem. So for example, John has already told us back in John chapter 2 verse 13 that the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In chapter 6, Jesus will feed 5,000 men and John will tell us, John chapter 6 verse 4, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. In John chapter 7, Jesus will say, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And in John chapter 8, he'll say, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And John will tell us that both happened in the context of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. John chapter 7 verse 2. Now the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. And verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. In fact, there are six times, six occasions, that John mentions Jesus at Jewish religious feasts. And in every case, he tells us the name of the feast because there's something about what Jesus does or says that ties to that feast, that shows that Jesus, some aspect of the feast rather, points forward to him and is fulfilled by him. In every case, John does that except one. John chapter 5, verse 1. Look there. Now there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John doesn't tell us which one. Why? I think it's because the key to understanding this sign is not found in knowing which particular feast this is. The key to understanding the significance of this sign is seeing it in relation to something else, which we'll get to in a moment. But for now, 
I want you to notice how John zooms in three times to get our focus where he wants it. So look again at the passage, John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So there's your context. There's a, a feast, some feast, we're not told which one, of the Jews in Jerusalem. Zoom in. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. So within Jerusalem, there's a roofed structure with five colonnades, five pillars, by a gate in the side of the temple, which has a pool by it, where pilgrims would go and they would take their animals to wash them in the pool before they would take them into the temple to be sacrificed. Zoom in. In these, that is, under the roof, among the colonnades, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So picture the scene. Imagine being there. There's the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, multitudes of them, sitting there in and among the animals. Outside the temple, no access in, no Royal Melbourne Hospital, no Medicare, no physios, no Fred Hollows Foundation, no spinal clinic, and with little to no help, hope rather, of ever getting better. Zoom in. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years ago, Bob Hawke was in his first year as Prime Minister of Australia. 38 years ago, a jar of Vegemite was the first item ever sold, or scanned rather, in an Aussie supermarket. 38 years ago, the $1 coin was first introduced. 38 years ago, homosexual sex was decriminalised in New South Wales. 38 years ago, Apple sold its first computer. And 38 years ago, Katy Perry, Prince Harry, Mark Zuckerberg and LeBron James were all born. 38 years is a very long time. You see, at this point in John chapter 5, this man has been an invalid longer than Jesus had been incarnated. How many times had he been carried by family and friends to sit by that pool? Just think for a moment about how difficult we can find it at times to receive help. Here's a guy who literally cannot get from A to B without someone picking him up and carrying him. How humiliating. How many times over those 38 years did he go home from the pool dejected and disheartened and disappointed? Because you see, he's by the pool for the same reason that all the invalids were there. See, every now and then the waters in the pool would stir, probably because there was an underground spring feeding the pool. And when the spring bubbled up, it caused the water to churn. You see, desperate people will believe and do dumb things. I don't mean that disrespectfully, but you only have to look around the world today from reports of statues of Mary weeping to the billion-dollar cosmetic surgery industry with its false hopes of delaying death with a nip and a tuck to know that's just true. People believe that when the water churned, it was a sign that an angel of God was present. 
churning up the water. And if you could get into the water first, then maybe, maybe you could get yourself healed. Hence, verse 6, when Jesus sees the man and says to him, do you want to be healed? The man simply responds, verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. In other words, I've got to get into the water and be first into the water because that's my only chance of ever being healed. In the invalid's mind, the only hope he has of ever being healthy again is to get into the pool because he is unaware of who it is that is speaking to him. Jesus says to him, verse 8, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And just as God spoke creation into being in Genesis 1. In fact, you remember the repeated phrase in Genesis 1. It's, and God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. Well, here, so here, Jesus says, and like that, it is so. Verse 9. And immediately, or at once, the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and walked. Now, when I'm preparing to preach a passage, I often think, like, why do the biblical writers record what they do and, and not the things that they leave out? So, so why is it they choose to record the things that they record? See, I just want you to think for a moment about the kinds of things that John could have focused on here. He could have focused on the power of Jesus. I mean, that what Jesus says simply gets done. That is amazing. No one in this room has that kind of power. John doesn't mention it. He could have focused on the compassion of Jesus. But the guy doesn't go to Jesus. Jesus singles him out. It's Jesus who sees him, who knows him, who asks him if he wants to be healed, and who heals him. Jesus has amazing compassion on those who are struck down, stricken by the sickness and suffering and riddled by the effects of the fall. Of course, all of those things are here in the passage, implicit, sitting in the background, but John doesn't mention, or focus on rather, any of them. Because they are not the key to understanding the significance of this sign. I want you to look carefully again at the passage and just, just notice what's the first thing John tells us immediately after Jesus performs this sign. Remember, John didn't tell us which Jewish religious festival this occurred at. But now, immediately after the sign, he does tell us the precise day. Verse 9. Now, that day was the Sabbath. In other words, John's saying, if you want to understand the significance of this sign, if you want to see how it should lead you and guide you to come to the place where you would believe and keep on believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you might have life in his name, the key is the Sabbath. So, to see the significance of this sign, so this is point number two, the significance of the sign, you have to see it in connection with the Sabbath. Now, I know it's New Year's Day, you're probably weary from being up late last night, but just for the next... Five or ten minutes, I want you to kind of concentrate hard, sit up straight, because we're going to do some hard work, some heavy lifting. We're going to look together at what the Old Testament said about the Sabbath, and then also how the Jews in Jesus' day came to understand the Sabbath, 
Because seeing those two things will help you to see the significance of what's happening in verses 10 to 18. Okay? So, firstly, what's the Sabbath? Well, in the Old Testament, God told all the Israelites to rest from their regular work, their usual employment. That's important. On the seventh day. So that simply meant if you're a builder, you didn't build. If you're a farmer, you didn't farm. If you're a trader, you didn't trade. And the whole thing was modelled after God's own pattern of work and rest from the creation. So just as God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day, well, so too God's people, the Israelites, were to work six days and rest on the seventh day. And the whole thing was intended by God to be a blessing. You see, it was intended to be a day of rest and relaxation where they honoured God and worshipped Him and enjoyed time with family and friends and remembered and celebrated God's work, especially His work of saving and redeeming them, delivering them from Egyptian slavery. So just suppose you're an Israelite living in the first century and Saturday, the seventh day, rolls around. It's business as usual for the rest of the world, but for you and your family, it's tools down, it's shut up shop so that you can spend time with family and friends and the people of God resting and worshipping and remembering God's deliverance. And in that act, you were in a very real way declaring and demonstrating to the people and nations around you that you belong to the people of God and that you're living under the law of Moses. You see, it's because of what the Sabbath observance signified that meant that breaking the Sabbath was no trivial thing. In fact, in Exodus 31, Moses writes, verse 14, You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. So so here's what the religious leaders in in Jesus' day did. They thought, we need to make sure that people keep this law. And so what we'll do is we'll create a whole bunch of additional laws to safeguard this law. So if the boundary is here, they thought, well, we'll set the boundary way back here. If the Sabbath meant you you cease from your usual employment, we'll, we'll create, they thought, categories of work that no one can do regardless of what their usual employment was. And so in the years after Jesus, they wrote down 39 categories of work and they had literally hundreds of rules around those categories of work which specified what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, regardless of what your usual work was. I want to read to you their 39 categories of work and then give you some examples of their rules. So I'm going to, this is just, just bear with me, I'm reading from the Talmud. So this is a a Jewish doc, early Jewish document that records uh, their 39 categories of work that you could not do on the Sabbath. See, here we go. It says this. The principal acts of labor prohibited on the Sabbath are 40 less one. If you're not good at math, that's 39. Here we go. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding into sheaves, threshing, winnowing, fruit cleaning, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, wool shearing, bleaching, combing, dyeing, spinning, warping, making two spindles, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying a knot, untying a knot, sewing with two stitches, tearing in order to sew together with two stitches, hunting deer, slaughtering the same, skinning them, salting them, preparing the hide, scraping off the hair, cutting it, writing two letters, erasing in order to write two letters, building, demolishing in order to rebuild, kindling, extinguishing a fire, hammering, 
and transferring from one place to another. These are the principal acts of labor, 40 less 1. So that's the 39 categories of work that you could not do, regardless of what your usual employment was. And then in addition to that, they had all these rules, hundreds of them, that specified what you could and couldn't do, that helped you to understand the rules. So, for example, let's say it's the Sabbath and you want some milk. Well, that raises the question, how much milk? How heavy is too heavy? When does milk become a burden? One of their rules said that you could carry milk, but only to the quantity of a mouthful, which for some of you was more than others. Let's say it's the Sabbath and friends are over and you need to make room, but there's a chair in your lounge room and you want to move it. The chair's too heavy to pick up. That would break the Sabbath. So maybe you think, well, what I'll do is I'll, I'll drag the chair. The problem is that in the first century, often floors weren't sealed. So if you drag a, a heavy chair, well, then the, the, the leg of the chair might leave an indentation, a furrow in the ground. And if you drag a chair and leave a furrow in your lounge room, that's starting to look dangerously like ploughing. So they wouldn't move the chair. Um, no looking at handheld mirrors on the Sabbath, because if you're a guy, you've got a beard, you might be tempted to trim it. And there's no trimming on the Sabbath. If you're a girl and you spot a grey hair, you might be tempted to pluck it. And sorry, ladies, there's no plucking on the Sabbath. Now, remember the last category of work in their 39 categories. It was transferring something from one place to another. Transferring something from one domain to another domain. That in mind, look again at the passage, picking up at verse 8. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Very dangerous. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. You're supposed to hear a kind of dun dun dun. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now think about it. This guy has been an invalid for 38 years, so you can hardly argue that his normal work, his usual employment, has been to function as the delivery guy for sleeping duck or koala mattresses. So, so just to be clear, Jesus hasn't commanded him to break the Sabbath. He's commanded him, or rather he's healed him, and told him to pick up his bed and walk so that everyone would see how complete and final the healing is, and in the process he's broken one of their rules. So I want you to just, just look at look carefully at verses 11 and verse 12. And notice what's mentioned in verse 11. But it's not there in verse 12. It's missing. Verse 11. The invalid answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. So notice how he's passing the buck. He's like, hey, don't blame me. I'm not, I'm not at fault here. I'm just doing what this other guy said. Verse 12, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed? You notice what's missing. He's been an invalid for 38 years. He has just told them that he's been healed. They can see with their own eyes that he's been healed and they make no mention of it. I think John wants us to see that they think they see what's important but they're actually blind to what's important. 
they are blind to see the sign and what it might signify. We'll think more about why in a moment, but for now, notice verse 13, that the healed invalid actually can't answer their question. It's very interesting. He's, been, he's seen Jesus. He's been healed by Jesus. So he has literally had a sign performed on him, but he doesn't know Jesus. That is, he doesn't know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Saviour of the world, and that if he turns from his sin and believes in him, then he can have life, eternal life, life in his name. You see, I, I imagine that living as an invalid for 38 years would feel, it would feel like hell. Some of you here this morning might be able to relate to that. You've got things in your life that are very, very hard. And if God would just take them away, it would feel like you had your greatest need met. Notice that Jesus wants this man to know that as much as his life might have felt like hell, it has not been hell. Hell is real. It is still coming. And the only hope this man has, like the only hope that we have, is to turn from his sin and trust in Jesus. Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse, that is nothing worse than the past 38 years, may happen to you. And amazingly, the only indication John gives us in terms of this guy's response is he went away and obeyed not Jesus, but the Jewish religious leaders. The man went away, verse 15, and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Now, to be clear, he's not telling them that to evangelize them. This is not a John 4, woman at the well scenario. You know, Come see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? No, he's only telling them to carry their favour and exonerate himself. Look at verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now again, just think for a moment. How, how do you expect, at this point, Jesus to respond? Here's what I expect. So... so in light of everything we've seen regarding the Sabbath, all their rules and all their regulations and all their misapplications, I expect Jesus to go straight after their wrong understanding of the Sabbath. That's where I expect him to go. But notice, he doesn't do that. Instead, what Jesus does is he takes the sign and the Sabbath and he brings them together and makes them the lens through which they should look at him and understand something of his identity. In other words, he shifts the whole thing from being about the Sabbath to being about him. So that means that in verse 13, when the religious leaders wanted to find out who Jesus is and Jesus withdrew, he wasn't being a coward. That is... He wasn't concerned that people might discover who he is. He was concerned that amidst all of the hype and hysteria of the crowd following the healing, that he might, they might misunderstand who he is. And so he withdrew. If only more churches today didn't share his concern. See, in John chapter 6, um, 
one, things that, one of the things that will happen there is you will meet a crowd and the crowd will want to make Jesus king by force. But they don't understand what kind of king Jesus is. They don't understand that he's the kind of king who came to lay down his life for his people. So Jesus withdraws. Well, it's similar here. In the midst of misunderstanding, he withdraws. But now, verse 17, notice, amidst increasing hostility, Jesus begins to clarify who he is. Verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. Verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So I want you to just, just notice the parallelism between verse 16 and verse 18. They are almost verbatim, word for word, the same. Look at verse 16, but notice how it increases in intensity. Look at verse 16. This was why the Jews were seeking, or this rather, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. So what Jesus says in verse 17 shifts the Jews from wanting to persecute him to wanting to kill him. Jesus brings together the sign and the Sabbath to show what the sign signifies about him and now they want to kill him. The question is, why? Um, I think uh, there's, there's a guy called Don Carson. He's a New Testament scholar. I think he's written probably the best commentary there is on John's Gospel. I've not written, uh, read rather every commentary on John's Gospel, but of the ones I've read, it's the best. Um, it's not just me that thinks that. Lots of people would say that. Um, I, I want to kind of summarize uh, some of what he and most commentators say is happening in this verse because I suspect it's probably not Im immediately apparent to most of us why things escalate so quickly. I mean, obviously, you can look at the end of verse 18. You can see it's got something to do with Jesus making himself equal with God. But we don't, I don't think at least immediately, we don't understand how Jesus's words in verse 17 lead them there. So how does that work? What's the logic? Well, what Carson and others point out is that, is that Jesus is actually tapping into a very common, widely held Jewish belief. It goes something like this. Remember that the opening chapters of Genesis tell us that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. And that the Sabbath that the Jews were to observe was to follow that pattern from the creation week. So they were to work six days, rest on the seventh day. But you see, if you were a thoughtful Jew and you were observing this Sabbath week after week after week, sooner or later, you would eventually find yourself wondering, what's God's relationship to this Sabbath that I observe week in and week out? Does God keep this Sabbath? If God keeps the Sabbath, if he stops working, who keeps the world running? And if God doesn't keep the Sabbath... Wouldn't that make God a lawbreaker? And what Carson and others point out is that all the Jews basically believe that God must still work on the Sabbath. Because if God stops working, we stop existing. He must continue to uphold the universe. He must continue to providentially care for this world. Because think about it, yesterday was Saturday and the sun still shone. And the wind still blew. If we went to the local hospital, I don't know which one's closest by here, but I... I trust babies were still born. 
and the world still turned. See, if God stops working, we would stop existing. God must continue to uphold the universe. He must continue to providentially care for this world. But you see, they also reasoned that while God's work continues on the Sabbath, he can't be charged with breaking the Sabbath. Because you see, God is different than us. So so while it's true that God continues to work on the Sabbath in terms of his ongoing providential care of the world, it's also true that he's still enjoying that rest that he entered into at the end of the creation week. So his work is ongoing, but so too is his rest. God is different than us. And there are all kinds of ways that we shouldn't try to act like God. But there's more. You see, when it comes to the specific charge in this passage about transferring something from one domain to another... The Jews reasoned that the entire world, the entire cosmos, the entire universe belongs to God. So it's just not possible for him to transfer something from one domain to another. My father is working until now, and I am working. For this self-defense to be valid, writes Carson, the same factors that apply to God must apply to Jesus. Either he is above the law given to mere mortals, or if he operates within the law, it is because the entire universe is his. Jesus insists that whatever factors justify God's continuous work from creation on also justify his. In other words... If they're okay with God working on the Sabbath to uphold the universe, they should be okay when the eternal Son of God enters into this world and works on the Sabbath to heal and redeem and restore and undo the effects of sin and death. And again, I just think about it. Jesus could have easily argued that he'd not broken the Sabbath. I mean, what work has he done? He's spoken and healed a man. Are you not allowed to speak on the Sabbath? Is mercy forbidden on the Sabbath? But instead, Jesus speaks in a way that draws together the sign and the Sabbath so that they become a lens through which to see what the sign signifies, who he is. Verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, of course, as others point out, he's not making himself equal with God. He is equal with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh, God became a man. And he dwelt among us. Well, that's the passage. I want to say a couple of things by way of implication. Firstly, it's, it's interesting to me, trust it will be to you, that, that John records this sign so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. And yet, notice the sign doesn't seem to work on the main people in these verses. Neither the Jews 
nor the invalid, it seems, believe. So, so clearly, it's possible to see signs and not believe. In fact, he's a guy who literally has a sign performed on him, and yet, he doesn't believe. And yet, John records the exact same sign so that we might believe. If that's confusing to you, the key thing, I think, to realize is that while Jesus himself used signs to reveal his identity and provoke faith in his people, signs are really only as good as the hearts that receive them. I remember a number of years ago, a friend of mine pointing out how many people there are in the Bible who see signs and yet who don't believe. I mean, John's gospel is full of them. He went on to say, I think he's right, that that's because our fundamental problem isn't that we are morally neutral toward God, as if to suggest that all we need is we just lack a bit of information. And so what we need is people to know a bit more, see a bit more, experience a bit more, and then everyone would believe. No, again and again, the Bible presents our fundamental problem as being the disposition of our hearts. People don't believe because they don't want to believe because they actually don't want Jesus. And that that unbelief can take on many different forms. In this passage, I think, we see two of them. Let me point them out so that you might see ways or tendencies this year that might lead you to be in danger of missing Jesus. So firstly, there's the disinterested, content to settle for the blessings of Jesus without actually knowing him, lostness of the invalid. Do you notice that though he's been healed by Jesus, he never once thanks him or honors him. He makes no attempt to know him. And when he's called to leave his life of sin, he chooses to seek the approval of the world rather than the approval of Jesus. Friends, be careful this year of simply being content to enjoy the blessings Jesus provides and Melbourne is full of them. And I hope you enjoy them. But be careful of simply being content to enjoy the blessings Jesus provides without any real desire to know him or commune with him. Little Bible reading, little prayer. And then when in the world, being more inclined to seek the approval of the world rather than the approval of Jesus. Second, there's the self-righteous, legalistic, cruel, proud arrogance of the Jewish religious leaders. You see, they view themselves and others through the lens of their own perceived performance before God. They are quick to condemn others when they don't live up to their standards, their rules, and they're confident that they're always right and able to see what's most important, which actually makes them blind to see who Jesus is and why they might need him. Carson says this about these Jews. He says, They hear of the wonderful healing and of the formal breach of their code, their rules, and they're only interested in the latter. They think they see what is important, but in religious matters there is none so blind as those who are always certain that they see. Tim Keller in his book, um, Reason for God, has, I think, a really helpful section where he, just, he points out that there's actually a couple of ways to avoid Jesus. One's obvious. That is, it's, it's, it's obvious that you avoid Jesus by just simply living life however you want, breaking all the rules. Lots of people do that. But there's a second, more subtle way, actually, of avoiding Jesus. 
And that's by trying to keep all the rules to save yourself. Listen to what he says. It's possible to avoid Jesus as saviour as much by keeping all the biblical rules as by breaking them. Both are sin. Self-salvation through good works may produce a great deal of moral behaviour in your life, but inside you are filled with self-righteousness, cruelty and bigotry. And that, I think, is these Jewish religious leaders in this passage. They lack entirely any compassion toward the invalid who's been healed and they'd rather kill Jesus than admit that there's something basically wrong with them. And they actually need Jesus to save them. That's the first implication. Be careful of ways or tendencies that might lead you to miss Jesus. Second and finally, I wonder what this passage has to say, has to tell us in a culture like ours at the start of this new year with so many competing views about Jesus. Is he extremely important? Somewhat important? Or not important at all? Well, there's lots we could say, but perhaps the first thing we should say, because it's the most obvious is that Jesus doesn't share our confusion. Whatever you make of him, he clearly understood himself to be God and he clearly believed that he came into this world to save people like us from our sin so that something worse than the worst things that might happen to us now don't happen to us forever. I remember... uh, hearing this, the story of a guy called Dick Lucas. He was the, the pastor at St. Helens Bishopsgate in London, one of London's most prominent um, churches. He was, he was preaching one day, and in the context of the sermon, he, he quoted one of uh, the London re- reporters in their local paper. And what the reporter was saying in the article is that the only way for him to ever believe in God is if God provides him with a watertight argument. That's the only way he's ever going to believe in God. And maybe you're here this morning and can relate to that. You think, man, if I'm going to follow Jesus, if I'm going to give my life to him, then the only way that's possible is if God provides me with a watertight argument. Dick Lucas simply said that the Bible doesn't give us a watertight argument. Think about it. Bible starts, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It's not trying to give you a watertight argument for the existence of God. It is presupposing that God exists and it's telling us that he is the one who made everything and that we owe our existence to him. What's more, you can always know more, learn more, have more questions answered, which is not to say that, you should, that there are no answers rather or that you shouldn't try to seek answers But it is to say that if you wait until you have all of them, you will never believe. What's more, if you say that you'll only believe if God gives you the watertight argument you're after, that turns everything actually on its head. See, it places you in a position of authority over God where you're now telling God what he must and must not do and how he must bend to your request. That's not how revelation works. Revelation is God's gracious condescension to us. See, at some point in our lives, all of us find ourselves asking questions. Maybe you'll find yourself in this position this coming year. I don't know. Maybe it'll be in 10 years, 50 years. But at some point, all of us 
find ourselves asking questions like, does God exist? And what's he like? And can I know him? And can I actually be forgiven by him for the wrong things that I've done? What if God chooses to answer those questions in a way that is far more comprehensive and beautiful and relational than a mere series of watertight arguments? Because the Bible doesn't give us a watertight argument, Dick Lucas said. But what it does give us is a watertight person against whom, in the end, there is no argument. These, that is, these signs, this account of Jesus' life, death and resurrection are written so that you may believe and keep on believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. I pray that's true for all of us this coming year. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your grace and your mercy to us in the Lord Jesus. I pray that you'd help us to trust him, that you would strengthen our resolve this new year to follow and serve him. And I pray that this year would be our best year yet of knowing and loving and serving him. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.